Pura Vida, amigos, and welcome to another episode of La Vida Verde podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Human. Today, my guest is Oren Shadel. Oren is um, an Israeli who spent a number of years working in the biotech sector, uh, living in San Francisco, California. He's also a board member of our sister communities, Alegria and La Acuvia, and I think we're going to have a great conversation. Um, I'm looking really forward to it. So without further ado, here we go. Okay, welcome, Warren. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me here, human. Okay. And, uh, okay, so let's start at the beginning. All right. Uh, you were born in Israel, right? Nope, I was not. You weren't? No, I was actually born in the U.S. and lived oh. there for three years and then moved to South Africa for five years. South Africa. And then made it to Israel. Okay, and you grew up in Israel? I grew up in Israel, yeah. Yeah. And, and in Israel until I was 27. Oh. And then I moved to the States. And then a year ago, we moved to Costa Rica. Okay. Yeah. And so what brought you from Israel back to the U.S.? I started the grad school in the U.S. Okay. So I started a PhD program and it got me out of Israel. So that was an adventure. So are you Dr. Oren Shadel? I'm a PhD. I'm not a medical doctor. But oh, you have a PhD? Yeah. yeah. And what's your field? I'm a molecular biologist. Oh. Whoa, I didn't realize I was in such company. Excuse me. I feel so, okay, honored. Okay, so molecular biology. And then what, you were in the U.S. And then, well, how did you find the Machuca Valley? Um, coincidence, to be honest. Uh, we were living in San Francisco for uh, about, what is it, nine years at the point. We is you. My you. family, my, my partner, Nama, and my daughter, Alia. Mm-hmm. We're living in a house with another family. And they have a son who's half a year younger than our daughter. So it was a really nice nest that we had over there. But um, living in California became tough after the pandemic. And we wanted we wanted out. We wanted to leave. We didn't know where, didn't know where we were going to go. But we decided we have to get out. So we, we said, okay, COVID gave everyone the gift of digital nomading. Let's ride that wave for a bit. And so you could do that, your job, from... Yeah, so my job at the at that time, I I was in a company that I'd started with three other co-founders. We did um, the company was about molecular diagnostics of genetic diseases. Uh, molecular diagnostic of genetic diseases. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That's like um, genetic diseases, things that people are born with that are inherent in their genes, and you did diagnostics uh, to like dis- decide like if they had them or like. Yeah, so like the di- testing kind of yeah. Thing? So the diagnostic is um, is to understand what the genetic background of a person is, and once you understand that, then a physician has a lot more tools to work with in terms of uh, solutions for different types of conditions. Different. A lot more personalized and, and specialized in that sense. Um, we were lucky with this company. We started the company even before COVID. We had a remote first kind of um, idea, so the whole company was in remote. And to be honest, one of my co-founders, I only met her physically like two years into it. Yeah, the first two years it was all co-founders. Yeah, you had a you were like business partners. Oh, we'd finished like raising money and all of that. We'd hire teams and everything. Before that, we never met. Wow, never met physically. It was this is all done virtually, but we had like a really like really good connection. The 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 four founders, we could 
we were on Zoom and we could contain the thing in Zoom. But it was also part of the philosophy of the company. We wanted it to be a virtual company, digital first, and then physical if we really needed physical stuff. So that was, it was an adventure. So this is during, and then COVID happened and you moved to this area. You found this area before COVID or after COVID? Like during? During, I guess. So around... October 21 is when we decided that's it. We're wrapping up our bags and leaving California. California didn't feel like the right place for us any longer. You didn't know where you were going? We or... had no idea. No. Okay. So we decided to do digital nomading and having that backbone of the company was very convenient and because COVID made digital nomading legit in many people's mm-hmm. eyes. Um, so we, we spent three months, in, three months in Israel. That was a lot of, that was always fun. When my daughter goes back to Israel, she's She's like a, a a fish in a pond. She's she feels at home over there, and has no no problems blending in. Mm-hmm. And being with family was always great. But uh, for both of us, the time difference was very difficult. All of our teams, both my partner's team and our team, all ten hours earlier, so we had to be in this time zone. So we I see we had plans to come here for Envision Festival. And that oh really? You're coming for Envision? <laughs> yeah. And last year. The year they canceled. Yeah, yeah, the year right. they canceled it, and um, the second year they canceled it because no, was it the second year? No, it was the first. They only canceled one year because COVID started right after 2020, so 2021 was canceled, right? And 22, they canceled two years. Two, yeah, yeah, probably two years. 22 were supposed to go, we didn't go. Okay, okay. So that was the okay. So yeah. 2022, you didn't. So you came for Envision, right? We came for Envision. It was canceled. And then we just decided, okay, let's just stay. Let's hang out here. We were visiting a friend next to Guanacaste, next to Pachamama. We stayed at his house for a couple of weeks. And the people that were there that were at his house as well were just like really fun people to interact with. Every night was a fun night. It was like after months of being in San Francisco's weather, which I know many of you know, it's it's foggy all so the time. In Pacha, they were in Pachamama or just near it? Part of the no, community. It was. It's part. It's next to the community. Pachamama has a very unique dynamic to it, and yeah. So, so one sec for our guests that don't know, Envision is a music festival in Costa Rica that's been happening for ten years now, and um, it's a pretty big one. It's about ten thousand people now, and it's awesome. And I perform there almost every year, so I might have met you there. And Pachamama is uh, another eco village that exists. Um, it's on the Nicoya Peninsula, right? And it's made up, um, it's an interesting community of like, it's a lot of Israelis, right? It's Israelis and Germans that mostly came here following a, a devotee of Osho and named uh, Teohar, 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 Teohar. And uh, yeah, I think he still is kind of involved in the community, but now it's kind of taken on a new life uh, as like an eco village. So maybe we'll have a member of Pachamama later, but anyways. So this is the community you're referring to. You were living over by there. We were living next to them. Our daughter actually went to kindergarten at the Pachamama kindergarten. So we had a lot of interface with the community. We participate in their events quite a bit. We did the workshops. There was a really good click over there. And I was also invited to help with workshops afterwards. So it was a a really good connection over there. And all of this together was kind of like, what are we doing next? We really didn't know. So we kind of kept on delaying a decision. And then one night when we were sitting at our friend's house over there in Guanacaste, Stephen Brooks rolls in and he's like, yeah. The man, the myth, the the, legend. The the person who brings all of this together. (laughs) And he rolls in, he tells us about Alegria. And we heard a little bit about Alegria because some of the people that were at the house had invested in property, Uh Alegria. 
And then here's Steven telling us about it. And Steven, he's like an amazing sales guy. He can sell ice to an Eskimo. We'll have Steven on it. We haven't had him on the show yet, but it'll be a big moment when we do for sure. He could sell ice to an Eskimo. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so he, he's there and, he, and he's talking, he's telling us about it again. We're getting all excited. And then coincidentally, a week later, we had to travel south and our path led us through Alegria. So we stopped, looked at the land, looked at the lot, fell in love with the lot. Uh -huh. The view was beautiful. And we said, let's invest. So let's just do it. I mean, the view, is, the, the view caught our eye. Let's, let's, put the, let's just have the land and figure out what we're going to do with it later. And did you, had you like studied the, like the internal workings of the community or kind of the agreements or kind of like the things? Did, were you attracted by those things too? Or was it just like you love the land and that was enough? That's a good question. So I must say our due diligence was my 70% over the theater. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like, it wasn't nailed properly, right? But, um, and for the better, for the better half. Because when you, um, if I look back at my, uh, the way I do due diligence in the business world, it would have been way more, uh, way more dissecting than we would have done this one. But this one, there was, there were two things that were going on over here. First of all, there's the emotional side of the land and the community, what we're joining, what is the vision that we're joining over here. And then there's, of course, the investment component of it. And when we weighed it all together, it just made sense. Okay. And let's just do it and then figure out the details when, when the time is right. And so you had already sold your company or you were out of your company? At or... that point, I'd exited, yeah. You exited? Yeah. Okay. So you were done and now you're like looking yeah. for a new thing. I was done looking for a new thing. Okay. Um, and the new thing for me had to be with an ecological component to it. Mm -hmm. The company that we did, it was all about human health, and which is great, but the calling was to go more towards nature, conservation, ecology, and uh, uh, regenerative practices and less into um, very detailed biotech, um, very IP-heavy kind of super complicated <laughs> technology. So I've been in that world for a long time, and I wanted to kind of take a break out of that very deep hole and kind of zoom out and see, okay, can we apply any of this stuff to ecological problems and kind of that's where the path to well this is uh this is <laughs> this is the slippery slope too because when you start talking about biotech and ecological and human problems this is like the road you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions you got people like bill gates who are like you know talking about the investing in monsanto and gmos and he i believe he really believes that this is the way forward you know what i mean so so, yeah. so this is because this is my understanding of biotech is like right. biotech for me was always like something really bad, like super bad, don't do it. It was GMOs. It was like changing the genetics of humans. And, and so you're kind of biotech. Did You didn't get into like cellular, like changing cells or, or is it? So when I did my PhD, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tool we use in research all the time. I mean, making, uh, we call them mutations, a different strain of bacteria, worm, yeast, whatever. We engineer the DNA, we inject it, we monitor it. We can measure it. We can see the results and it's, it works really well. Um, and how do you feel about it? Like, you feel like so, you feel good about it. Well, you know? Okay. No, 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 no. I don't okay. Okay. I'm sorry, sorry. I don't even put words in your mouth. There's technology and then there's intention, right? Okay. So with every, with every technology, we really have to understand the pros and cons about it before we kind of dive deep into it. So just, I want to just put this out there. Editing DNA, we've been doing this for, uh, for decades. It's not a new thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just want to, I just want to put this down here right at the beginning. I personally don't think that GMOs are currently in their current state a healthy thing, okay? 
Because and for the main reason is we don't understand enough about them. And when we get into CRISPR, I'll explain to you exactly why. Okay. Okay. There are other aspects of biotech, especially in diagnostics, that we can learn a lot from nature and help us guide decisions about nature. Mm-hmm. So if we still work with nature unperturbed and learn how to work with it in in the right way, then there's a lot we can we can uh, get out of that. So I'll give you a great example. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, I was studying worms. I studied gusanos, the stuff yeah. we have in our compost pile, okay. a worm called Cyanorhabditis elegans. And we went deep on that worm, like really deep. <laughs> so it was the first uh, multicellular organism that we had the whole uh, genome sequence. This was back in 98, like really early in the days of, uh, of uh, genomics. And then back in the late 70s, we had a, an entire map of all of the cell divisions of that worm. So we can name each one of the 958 cells that it has in its body. So it started in the 70s. They were able to like dissect the cell divisions. Exactly. And then it wasn't until like the 90s that they were able to like 90s, to yes. break that up into DNA. Yeah. So, so two different technologies involved over here. But um, and I'm, I'm saying this because of yeah, I don't the, reason, the reason I'm getting into this <laughs> is because um, it, it's... When we worked, when I worked with uh, with that worm quite a bit, one of the things that came out was the types of uh, experiments that I'd set up to do. At first, it was a lot of perturbation. I'd make uh, I'd make a strain of a worm with a, a gene that I take from a, a from a, a jellyfish that glows green. I'd attach it to a gene inside the worm, and I'd measure the response to the environment. And that's okay. This gene turns on here. It goes into this body part. It's in these cells, and I can monitor and follow it. But what was, what was really cool about this is that when I need to grow the worms, I need to feed them. And their food is a bacteria, E. coli. And they eat E. coli. Oh, yeah, they eat E. coli. Yeah. A very, some strains more than others. And that's their nutrition. Do you think we should have worms in our human or uh, dried composting toilets then? Oh, yeah. That'd be a great, absolute great addition. I, th- I think that wor- worms provide a huge amount of benefits to, to the soil. So first of all, they move in all three dimensions. So they open up they open up the earth a lot. They make it a lot more porous. Water can, can go in deeper. That's one advantage. The other advantage is that they secrete all sorts of pheromones that signal the environment for different types of things. Some of those pheromones have positive effects on other organisms, just like bacteria have on roots of plants. Like certain bacteria can stimulate hormone secretion, and they're very positive for the growth. Why am I saying all of this? Oh no, they're totally fascinating. <laughs> so, so what I'm what I'm saying over here is that when we research biological systems, and the emphasis here is on systems, we understand all of the natural components at play, and if we understand how they work with one another, then we can understand how to shape these systems with a much deeper understanding. Now, does that reshaping have to do with with changing the DNA? Not all the time. And I don't think that it's always a positive thing. I'll give you an example. This is where CRISPR comes in. Okay. Okay. So the technology that I was working with in the last 15 years is called next-generation sequencing. So what does that mean for the lay terms? It means that we can sequence DNA at an unprecedented level. So, for example, the human genome, we have 6 billion letters. And when the first human genome was sequenced, it took over 10 years and $10 billion for that sequence. And it's partial sequence, lots of missing pieces in it, It's uh, and it didn't have a lot of variation. It didn't capture a lot of the different ethnicities in the world. So it's a, so I'm skipping a lot of details over here, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> but when we had next-gen sequencing, we can do all of this. I'm just going to fast-forward 20 years sure. later. So now we can sequence a whole human genome in less than $500, and it takes 48 to 72 hours. So it's like a huge jump in the terms of in turnaround time. Why is this important? 
Because when we're looking at GMOs, right, we say like I, I just, everyone's using the word CRISPR. So for those of you who don't know what CRISPR is, CRISPR is a technology. It's a it's a set of enzymes, and what they do is they um, they're originally um, discovered in in bacteria that is present in yogurt, and it's a defense mechanism. It's um it's immune it's an immune system defense that that bacteria has against um. Uh, against viruses and the way what it does is it identifies sequences of dna that were injected into the genome and it cuts them out because it's a defense mechanism and we use that in biotechnology because of the specificity of that so i we look for a very specific sequence in that dna we excise it and then we place something new in so we can do base pair changes we can flip the sequence like we can edit it pretty accurately and that was the theory <laughs> okay that's the theory. So think about it this way. You have six billion letters and you want to change one letter, one particular letter, one point. Like, how do you do that? Okay. So, okay. so it all depends on the neighbors, the neighboring letters. So as you're finding more and more letters adjacent to it, the possibilities of finding a mis- of being a mistake are smaller and smaller, but it doesn't eliminate the mistake. And this is where next gen sequencing comes in. Uh-huh. So we, so we, we did this in worms. We used CRISPR in worms, and we thought, okay, we're editing only one particular point of the DNA. We're changing that particular gene at that particular point. Let's measure it. And then we do the whole through, throughput sequencing. We measure it, and we say, oh, <laughs> that's not <laughs> true at all. We see this mutation being entered in multiple different places in the genus. It's not working. Off-site effects. That's, we call it an off-site effect. Mm-hmm. When the targeting doesn't work accurately. Right. And that's been the... Uh, that's been uh, uh, where CRISPR has been. Um, I, I don't want to say stuck because it's not stuck. It's it's evolving in that space of being a lot more accurate than what was promised at the beginning. So coming back, why is this important? Bring we want to bring this over. <laughs> bring so back, so we're going to talk about GMOs, <laughs> about genetically modified organisms, right? So we're we're taking a reductionist view of biology and saying if we make this one change because we've measured it in lab and we understand what this change can do. And we introduce this into an organism, that organism is going to behave the way that we anticipate it to behave. Right. Biology doesn't always work that way. Right. In fact, it rarely works that way. So in, in a lab setting, yes, when you have simple organisms where you have, um, it's very controlled settings, you can control the environment precisely, you can control the intake of food and oxygen and light and everything's controlled. But when right. it's out of the lab and it's a very complex organism, then mm-hmm. those things don't work as prescribed. And I still think there's a way to go in uh, genetically modified organisms, right? They and they were it's in Hawaii, like in Hawaii, like they have test plots. So that's what you're saying is like in a in a lab, you can control those kinds of things. But once it's out in the environment, like in like for instance, the test plots in Hawaii, they do it in Hawaii because it's isolated, right? Because they know like, well, if we did this in Iowa, for instance, like it's gonna it could spread across the whole continent, and that could be very bad because they are aware of this reality. The companies are aware that it's not always gonna go the way they they want but you know so anyways i'm i'm just trying to catch up so right. okay you're on it okay you're on, you're on it yeah okay. so my personal perspective over here is that changing nature now is is kind of a little premature in our understanding right. i think we have a lot more to do before we try to change nature uh the other thing is well nature has an advantage over us we have nature has like four and a half billion years of evolution and we're trying to catch up with that in less than 100 years so there's a, there's a gap over here, albeit we are the first species that's writing our own source code and modifying it. And there are experiments that have been done that were pretty amazing and successful, like uh, curing of SCID. It's an autoimmune disease that was done with gene editing. Um, 
Wow. And this this field has a place to grow. It definitely has places to mature into, but I think currently it's not yet. It's not yet there. It's not safe enough. The food, you mean in the food? In the food sector. Yeah. Now, albeit there are examples of companies that are doing a good job. There's a company in the US called Pivot Bio, and they have a strain of nitrogen-fixing bacteria that they've applied to uh, corn and wheat. And they've shown in a study of over 2,300 farms, if I'm getting the number correct, I might miss it here if there are a few hundred farms here and there, but they showed the, a 14% increase of yield just using a GMO strain of a nitrogen, fa- a nitrogen fixating bacteria. So that's a positive. And nitrogen, putting nitrogen in the soil is one of the things we talk about a lot, especially in permaculture. And here, because our our soil is often deficient in nitrogen, right? Right. That's why is that's what they're doing. They're exactly. creating plants that are nitrogen fixing. Well, no, the plants themselves are not nitrogen fixating. It's the uh, the strain of bacteria that they're using to seed the soil as a companion microbe to the plants. Those have the genetically modified. Uh, that's a genetically modified strain, and it's modified. I don't remember the details of where it's modified. They're different pathways of fixating nitrogen. Sure. I forget which one it is, but they've optimized it in a way that this strain produces a 14% increase of yield in these crops because of the higher throughput of nitrogen fixation. I see. Okay. So, so there are experiments <laughs> that are they're doing this properly and, and it's and it's getting there. But I, I and um, I think this is like the the reality behind it is when you make a genetically modified organism, that's how you defend your invention. Okay, so you have a proprietary strain, you can sure. patent it. It's a new type. It's a new DNA. It's novel DNA. You can patent novel DNA, like recombinant DNA, and then you can make money off of it. it. Well, yeah, they make money out of sales and and patenting and so on, and they don't have competition. Right, but, but they don't actually. And there's some safeguards to say like this is safe, generally safe, or considered generally safe. But those of us who have concerns around it. Which is all of, by the way, the San Mateo, we we went to the municipality 10 years ago when Monsanto, Dow Chemical, DuPont, CropLife, it's called, uh, they have a, a parent company called CropLife, and they wanted to set up right here in the, in the Machuca Valley. They loved this area because it's the fruit growing region of Costa Rica. They wanted to set up shop here. And we were like, once we found out, we were like, as a, that was the first joint community thing that we did with Ecovia, mm. members of Ecovia and Taquatal. We went to the municipality together and we were like, talk to them. And we had a whole thing. And they were just like, this is a really bad idea. We should not let these people come here. And the next, I believe it was the next day, definitely within that week, the Council of San Mateo banned GMOs in the valley. I think for uh, it, it's a good thing currently. I mean, there's... There are a lot of uh, voices on both sides saying that if we want to feed a, a growing population in the world, we have to go to that route. We have to be able to produce more. But I think that we haven't exhausted all of the different um, techniques that don't involve GMO. Right. So there are other, there are other things that we can we can learn with these technologies about how to work with nature that don't involve modifying the organism right and that's like permaculture these are like this is a it's not even that new i mean it's like you know i don't know 20 30 years old but it's like just becoming popular and people are just starting to implement it and these kinds of techniques take a long take a while you know like you plant a fruit tree it takes 10 years some usually before it fruits so there's you know you gotta nature takes is slow that's one of our permaculture principles is nature nature moves slowly you know we want everything to be immediate and fast in this modern world but like you know, we all need to, I think we all need to just kind of slow down. And like you said, like 
try out what other options do we have so what are some of those options you think that's a, that's a good question so first of all since i moved here i started learning more about uh growing food until until moving here the only thing i grew was worms and bacteria nothing larger than that so i know nothing about growing uh, carrots or cucumbers or peppers but uh, the more i'm digging into this the more i'm finding um techniques about growing plants with combinations of microorganisms so if you if we look at the soil and we we um we, we, talk, we always talk about healthy soil like what does healthy soil mean and when you look at soil that's not in agricultural lands you have soil that has a very rich microbiome so there's funguses there are all sorts of strains of bacteria there are viruses there's worms there's there there are lots of critters that are going inside. They're moving the earth, they're making the earth porous, they're fixating all sorts of minerals, they're fixating nitrogen, potassium, phosphate, zinc, molybdenum, whatever whatever you need. And beyond that, so they're preparing all of these nutrients so that plants can uptake them. So they can actually use them in um in a in an ion form that that they can they can absorb. Right. And the, the the fertilizer process did the same thing. When we make fertilizers, we're making ions. We're making um we're feeding plants with forms of, of those minerals that they can uptake. But, and that's a new thing. This has been around for a little more than 100 years. And before that, it was all about the soil health, like measuring the soil health. Well, not measuring. We couldn't measure it back then. Right. It's about healthy soil. Yeah, building composting. And like there was always the debate on you know, till or no till. And like now we have regenerative. And yeah, so there's a lot of options. Of like... There are many options over here. But, but I think... Now that we have more of an understanding about the relationships between a, a healthy soil microbiome and the plants that we're trying to grow, then understanding that, I think, is going to be a lot more fruitful, no pun intended, but yeah, more fruitful for us as a society than trying to engineer these specific strains and, 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 and go through these experiments in a very um, let's change things kind of attitude instead of let's observe and see how nature does things and imitate it with a more a much more intentional uh, agenda and and now the main difference is now we have we have the tools to do this we have like very precise tools to measure the microbiome so when you wanted to measure the microbiome about 10 15 years ago it was a very tedious task you take soil you would rinse it and then get all the microbes uh, centrifuge down so that you can actually see them, put them on a plate, try to grow them, and whatever grows, that's that's what you have over here. Uh -huh. Or you look at it under a microscope. Okay, so you, so there are two there are two things over here that kind of limit this observational um, this observation. Okay, so first of all, growing things on a, on a petri dish in a lab is not like growing things in the soil. Some organisms are going to make it, some are not. So. What you're looking at is a very small representation of what's really in the soil, right? right? So you don't really know, okay? And then when you look at it under a microscope, you're limited by your knowledge. So which of these bacteria can I identify? Which of these have I seen before and I can put a label on them? And then some of these are new. Can I identify them? Can I label them? And so on. And there's, it's not, it, it's a very slow methodology in that sense. Like you said, we want things fast, we want things thorough. So now there are new technologies that we can do. So we can apply sequencing the same, the same avenue. So we can sequence microbes from the dirt. And when we sequence stuff from the dirt, we're not just getting the microbes. We're getting everything that has DNA in there. Mm. Getting microbes, worms, viruses, fungus. Okay? And as a scientific community now, we have really large digital collections of these genomes. 
and we can map what we find against known genomes, mm. and then we can identify, okay, what's really growing in the soil, regardless of how we can imitate that soil in lab and reproduce it and grow it. So we're getting a much more comprehensive picture over here. So uh, just to kind of, because we have about, we have about like, yeah. you know, six minutes left or so, but like, is this your, is this what you're like, are you doing, is this something, this is your new passion? Is yeah. Like, yeah. And are you wanting to implement this like in, in our area? Is this, I mean. So th that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out. Is this like, this is definitely an area to do it in. And the main reason is that the Machuca Valley is attracting to it a lot of people that are very, very interested not only interested, but very passionate about growing things naturally. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, this is a really good region for growing fruit. It's the fruit capital of Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. um, that's to say, I mean, there are challenges over here. The earth over here has been um, eroded eroded by the cattle yeah. farming. So, it's, so we have to rebuild the soils. It's a really interesting time to participate in that and see maybe these technologies of observation that we can bring in can help us understand an ecosystem that is more that is more rich and connected without perturbing anything, without changing or modifying any of these strains with genetic engineering or anything like that. It's all about measuring and finding, okay, can does this soil sample have all the mixed fixators that we want? And we can add more. So it's kind of what I'm trying to figure out is this a business I want to get into now? Is this the right place for it? Is this the right time for it? Well, I think for certainly like somebody like me having that kind of um, diagnostic is really helpful. So I can know like, you know, because I'm not that scientific about any of my planting. I'm just like, I know composting. I know, and we have a Korean natural farmer who's been teaching me things. He's going to be one of our guests soon, Kyle Perry. And he's, you know, talk, talks a lot about building compost and or um, microbiome like naturally with like, you know, cheap materials. And we've done some of that. We've done MM, um, mountain microorganisms, which is just fermenting soil basically. But yeah. it would be interesting to get more specific and like, and know, for instance, like why are meringue trees, like in all the valley, all of our meringue trees are not fruiting properly. They're falling down young. And mm -hmm. this has been a question, like it's not, I think it's in larger Costa Rica issue. We're trying to figure out like what's going on. Is it a soil deficiency? But we would be able to tell that with somebody like you doing it. Well, so the, I mean, maybe. I, it's not a silver bullet. All we're doing is we're, we're, we can identify some of the microbes that, uh, well, not some, but most of the microbes that we have in the ground under, under the tree or the plant or the tuber, what, what have you. But So when you look at, when you do soil sampling, you do soil testing for a farm, then you, you send an a sample of your soil to a lab, they do an analytical test, and they tell you what percentages of different uh, minerals you have in the soil. And then based on that, a farmer decides what kind of compost combination they purchase. And that, that just, all you're doing is filling in the blanks, what's missing. And this idea is very similar, but without compost, instead of compost, we're using bacteria mm. so, or viruses or, uh, well, I, I don't scare people with viruses, but anything that can provide the right, uh, the right metabolism for fixating uh, different minerals. And also some of the bacteria over here, they, they do very interesting things. Some of the bacteria will secrete hormones, growth hormones for plants, like indolacetic acid, gibberellins, uh, um, auxins, cytokinins. These are all different groups of families, of hormone families that plants need to grow to extend their roots, to extend their uh, meristems. And uh, bacteria can affect plants in that way. They do have that capacity, certain bacteria. And then there are also a different, a whole different 
area of, um, of soil microbiome that has very strong antibiotic capabilities um, that some of the bacteria can secrete uh, antibiotics. So if we have pests on the land, we have pests in our crops, then with the right observation diagnostic, we can be like very precise about how we treat them. Um, Do you think we can have an app that we just like click and go, hey, exactly. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. So that's actually a technology that's been done in in cancer, especially in melanoma. So physicians use an app to take a picture of a different types of uh, skin coloration. And the app will classify it. Will tell you melanoma, no melanoma. I'm simplifying things over here. I'm simplifying things very, um, very high level over here. But when you take an image of bacteria or fungus, there's uh, and you lay and there's enough information about it, then you can probably identify it by an image. And if we can't identify it by an image, then we sequence it and we figure out what it is based on its DNA. And then we can we can go we can go really deep. So for example. The depth at which we can go is like um, with bacteria, for example. So when we, let's say in a hospital setting or a clinical setting, we would sequence bacteria to understand what antibiotics they're resistant against. Okay? So knowing that information, we would fight it with the right, anti- with the right um, antibiotic. So if you just like pump, pump, pump antibiotics randomly, you're not going to get anywhere. But when right. you know exactly what you're targeting you have a much better chance in doing things the right way. Right, and you don't have to use as much. It's just exactly. you're just kind of targeting a little bit. Okay, Oren, this is like fascinating stuff that I'm like super interested in, and um, I think I would love to uh, continue this conversation. And um, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, I think we'll have, we're, I think we're gonna have to have you on again because there's more I definitely want to want to talk about. Um, in so just just to kind of wrap it up, right. I guess. We didn't get to talk much about Alegria or Ecovia or whatever, but you know, there's we can talk about that later. What you're in Montreal too. You've been, you've got various places. Are you planning to live? Do you have an idea of like where you want to be in regards to this community? Like, so now we're in Lycovia. I mean, we're we're very happy in Ecovia. The the community over there is is at the place where it meets our needs, especially my daughter's needs. At the right spot, children and safety, and, exactly. Yeah. Children and safety, and lots of kids to hang around with, and having like knowing that they can run around barefoot in the village, and nothing is going to uh, nothing's going to affect them. That's fine. Alegria is not yet at that stage. It's a younger community, um, and Alegria is interesting by its own its own right. I mean, it's a community that's forming, so and it's starting out. So we have a very big opportunity over here to make it what we want in terms of neighbors. So. Right. And that's what we're doing now. We're organizing our garden and our farm in the way that we want to. We want to see more production of seasonal and uh, tropical varieties. And we, we have some very good talent on our garden as well. And like I said earlier, this, this valley is drawing in lots of people that are very, very, very fascinated about organic food uh, growth and different ways that we interact with the land. So... The combination of the, the the villages and the Machuca Valley, I think it's bringing in the, the right the right setting for being more uh, um, involved in food production in, in in that aspect of food production, organizing food production and and thinking about it in a regenerative way. It's like the ideal, like my ideal would be that we, um, when like I, I think I speak for a, a large number of people who want to see 
um, synthetic fertilizers be reduced um, um, in in usage. And I think the the biggest issue with synthetic fertilizers is that in order to use them, you have to ship them. And to ship them, that means you're moving big sacks of powder around the world. And what that means is that you're spending gasoline on that. So your cost of food is always going to be associated with gasoline because you have to move big sacks of fertilizer from place to place. And with microorganisms, that's not the case. You're not moving big masses of, of, um, right. of material, right? So theoretically, uh, you can move bacteria around with small samples and then each farm would expand that. They grow the bacteria, they feed it the right food, and then they use that on their farm. So you're not moving multiple masses. You're moving a large a large weight, large mass, and you're relying less and less on gasoline to move that stuff. Mm-hmm. So ideally, an ideal world that I live in is we don't move fertilizers and have food associated with gasoline and, and fossil fuels. We Food is grown separately from that supply chain. So there's there's definitely issues and there's things that can be helped and, and fixed, but there's definitely like things that are not being, you know, most people still haven't even tried in terms of organic food production. It's not it's not rocket science, actually. It's been happening before we were here. I mean, it happened for literally thousands of years. People have been producing food organically. So this kind of new technology thing for me, it's a it's a blip. I think technology has its place, but I also think and you didn't ask me, but I'm telling you, like my my position on all this is like, I think we can we can we can use some technology, but the truth, but my feeling is like we we had it going okay for a long time, and I'm not saying it was perfect, and there's definitely room for improvement. But if we focus too much on technology, and we focus on that reliance upon technology, we're kind of missing out. Like you said, there's a lot of techniques that aren't being employed, and in modern society, which are, which we've known for years. So, and I think that's just because of, honestly, when I think it's probably because of money, it's probably because of greed, because a few corporations like realize like, Oh, like, like you said, synthetic fertilizers, we can sell these things and make money. I mean, sure they may be effective and they may be helpful, but it's not like we didn't have things that worked before. It's just that these guys could sell this stuff. And so they did a pretty good job of of like uh you know convincing us that uh that this was a better way when in fact in the bigger picture maybe it's maybe it's not and we kind of have to wrap it up so is there a final word you want to want to get in here yeah one one final thought over here so i i I agree with a lot of what you're saying but i think the main challenge or the main uh idea of uh, synthetic fertilizers was just scale it'd be able to grow a lot more food in a much faster time scale scale like you're saying, the traditional uh, growth techniques that have been around for thousands of years, they, they served a very small human population. When you look at the growth of the human population between the beginning of the 20th century and the end of it, it's, it's a massive increase. And we needed a way to match feeding with that population growth. And traditional agricultural systems were not producing that amount. And so the, the, new te- the, new, the modern agricultural techniques rose to the challenge and did that. And now we're at a place where we're saying, okay, the, it brought us that far, but now what? Can we do better? Right. Can we, like, we understand what's needed. We understand the volumes. We understand supply chain. We understand a lot about feeding almost 8, 8 billion people, right? Now, can we do it in a way that's more sustainable? And I think that's where we are in this, in this journey. So, okay, I like this. We've come back to an, a, an agreement of like, okay, we're, 
We don't know what the hell we're doing, but we're we're almost there. We're no. we're figuring things out. We're figuring it out. We're figuring it out. But feeding eight billion people. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There was a, feeding one billion people. It's very a lot. different than feeding eight billion people, right? So yeah, well, I I appreciate that like kind of perspective on like you know it wasn't just them trying to make money. It's like there's there was some intention behind it beyond like greed and. Okay, well, uh, so okay, well, there's this has been a really interesting conversation. This is the this is there's a lot more we can talk about here. Um, I'm I just love having you in our community. Orin's also very involved in like you know bringing the communities together and like this topic of food. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. This topic of like food production and how do we work together? Excuse me, work together to create more more food production and how do we resource and network better? I love that you're you've been so passionate about that. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you, Oren. Thanks okay. for being on our show. Thank you, man. Okay. Oren Shadell. I'm Matthew Human. You can follow us on La Vida Verde podcast on YouTube. We're also on Spotify, Instagram, uh, Spotify, and um, iTunes podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at finca underscore vida underscore verde. We have a Patreon if you want to support this podcast. Please go check it out. Patreon.com. La Vida Verde podcast. And um, we'll be back with another episode soon. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in from Finca Vida Verde here in the Machuca Valley. I'm Matthew Human. This is Orange Shadell. And thank you for watching. Thank you, everyone. Pura Vida.